Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Exodus chapter 14. Today I'm going to go over some very foundational Christian principles. I don't think I'm going to probably tell you, most of you, a lot that's new. There are some new insights, I think. I think I will say it a little better than I have before for me. But it's, it's, a, it's a powerful truth that we see here in the text. And I'm just not going to go by it without talking about it. You know, don't you, that the particularly the example of Israel as they go through the exodus, coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, and then into the promised land, has always been an example of the Christian life. That we learn all sorts of lessons about the Christian life from the way God dealt with Israel in that season of its life. And this point where we're coming to today, the passing through the Red Sea, is a very powerful part of those truths that we learn. So we're going to look at the, the chapter. We're gonna, I'm going to read chapter 14 as, and uh, explain it as I go, but do it as quickly as I can. But we're going to have a look at that, and then we're going to see the truth of what it means to be standing on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, as opposed to the western shore, uh, where they were camped waiting for Egypt to show up. So, Father, we ask for the Word of God to come alive. We ask for faith and a heart to hear and obey, that we might not forget the Word, but it might change us. I pray for grace, Lord, to speak your Word and to love this congregation as I speak it. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 14, verse 1 of Exodus saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. I think, in my own opinion, Israel is at a totally different place on the Sinai Peninsula than everybody else thinks it is. Aha, you've heard it first here. I think they went straight across the Sinai Peninsula as fast as they could, and I think they're on the eastern side of it, above the Gulf of Aqaba. And the Lord says to them, turn back and go back into the Sinai and turn south there. And I want you to camp. And then there's these names that nobody knows what they are. They figured, well, maybe they were cities, but we don't know where those cities might have been. I'll tell you what I think they are. I think they're the names of mountains. Baal Zephon, for example, means Lord of Winter. Well, I think there was high. And on the eastern side of the Sinai, there's mountains right up against the sea. Migdal means watchtower. There were a whole lot of migdals, and you'll find a number of references in the Bible to these migdals. So look at it this way. The Lord says to Moses, I want you to turn back, and I want you to go down in front of those mountains, between the mountains and the sea, right in front of the, the Egyptian watchtower. You see, they had them all through the Sinai Peninsula. They had copper mines and turquoise mines. I mean, the, 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 the Egyptians were all through the Sinai. And they had watchtowers watching for assault from the east. And he says, I want you to take everybody and camp right down on that alluvial fan, right against the sea, 
And I want you to stand and get right in front of an Egyptian watchtower so that the word goes back to Pharaoh that you're here, caught in this spot next to the sea. I want you to be the bait in a trap. How would you like that? For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. Ha ha, I got them. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. And then the king of Egypt, when he was told that the people had fled, and Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people and, and said, What is this we have done? We've let two million slaves go. Who's going to tend our gardens? Who's going to build our buildings? What were we thinking letting all this free labor go? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. He took 600 select chariots. Now that will be his elite security squad. Chariots were the, the uh, tanks, the armored tanks of the day. They were the fastest, most vicious form of warfare. Uh, they would have these light structure chariots with the large wheels, a couple of horses pulling, and then in the chariot would be two or three men. One would have a big shield, so they would defend them from the incoming arrows and, and spears and all. The other, another, and maybe be driving. Or if there was a third, there was a driver, a, a shield holder, and somebody who's shooting arrows and throwing spears. So these are, the, these are the armored division. And then he took also all the other chariots. That would be the, the normal, uh, the regular army of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Actually, he strengthened it and gave him boldness to do something stupid. The king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going, going out with a high hand, boldly, proudly marching in ranks. And then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They started by praying, but very quickly turned to complaining. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is, it, is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Just would you take note of how much fun it is to lead when God tells you what to do? All he's doing is doing what God told him to do. But boy, he's already in trouble. He looks, he looks dumb as a post. He's parked the entire two million people between the mountains and the sea with only a small channel behind them to get through, and here come the Egyptian forces, the, the, the elite forces coming first in their chariots, and they said, this is going to be a massacre. We'll be butchered on the beach. And in the natural, they would have been. So Moses looks like a fool, for one, and then he, they are angry at him for his leadership, his spiritual leadership as well. They said, we, you should have left us alone. Why did you bring us out here? And, Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, don't surrender, <laughs> stay where you are. He will accomplish this for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, 
You will never see them again forever. Would you read that line, that last part of that verse with me? That's, that's a real powerful statement. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Again, let's say that. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Notice that. You'll never see them again forever. God's going to cut off Egypt's power to ever capture you or kill you again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I think there's a hint there. You just would all keep silent. We'll do fine. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Moses was praying and refusing to go out and tell the people what God had told him. He, not often in the Bible do you find God scolding people for praying. But in this case, he says, Stop praying and go do what I told you to do. There are moments when that happens. But how would, you be, how would you like to be Moses? He's supposed to go out there and to say to two million people, don't worry, don't worry, I know it looks bad. <laughs> but God is going to deliver us. He's going to have us march right across that sea. <laughs> I mean, that is not an easy thing to say to two million people who figure they're about to die. I mean, they can just stone him right about then in fury. Like, you're insane. We followed a crazy man to this place. And it does look at it at this point. So he's been delaying. And, finally, and the Lord in his mercy says, I, hang on, I'll do something to make it easier for you. He says, as you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the, in the, the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will... Strengthen, give courage to the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of God, now that's the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus here, who is in that column of cloud and fire. And the cloud picks up and moves from in front of them to behind them. So everybody sees this dramatic move and set, settles down between the Egyptians and Israel. And then night put, draws on and it becomes dark. And it says, uh, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel and there was the cloud along with the darkness. I think the darkness of night and then probably it even, the cloud somehow made it darker on the Egyptian side. Yet it gave light at night on the, on the Israeli side. And so you've got this demonstration of what God is, of his protection. And then Moses does what he was told. He stretched out his hand with that rod in it. The historian Josephus tells us that he struck the water with the rod. He took the thing and went out there probably on some moment and went wham to divide it like that. And then, it, then notice what happens. The Lord sent, swept the sea back by a strong east wind. So the wind begins to blow in their face as it were powerfully blowing this water. And the, turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. Now you've read, I, I, this is one of these miracles that everybody has to weigh in on and try to explain away in natural terms. And so people, people say, well, the tide went out and it was really a shallow marsh. Actually, where I think it is, I think they went across the Gulf of Aqaba, but never mind. Uh, 
it wasn't a shallow marsh. It actually says that the Lord blew the waters back and they piled up on either side like a heap. So it, they go up like walls and piles. And in one place in the song that Moses writes, he says they were swirling, moving walls. <laughs> Have you been around the ocean a bit? It's a frightening force, isn't it? It's a powerful thing. No, you, know, you don't play with the ocean. It, there's, just a, there's a mass to that thing and a force to that thing that is just intimidating. I have at one point actually seen water stack up on a, as a heap. And um, I had a friend and when we first moved to Whidbey Island, he and I wanted to go fishing and neither of us knew what we were doing. And so we almost killed ourselves on a couple of occasions and this was one of them. We were going through Deception Pass in a small boat and, you know, Deception Pass is at the north end of Whidbey Island between Fidalgo and Whidbey. There's this channel, and there's a lot of water on the inside. And when the tide changes, all that water gets just sucked through that narrow channel. And it's just a torrent going through there. The power in there is really awesome. Well, we went through it right during the tide change. Didn't know that, but there we were. We did notice that the boat sort of bubbled underneath. There was a strange bubbling noise. And then it would move sideways. Not, not just going forward, but it would move sideways suddenly, and then it would move this way in, moving back and forth. And it was a strange phenomenon riding in this boat. But I'll tell you what got me is I looked over to the north side, and there was water stacked up about three feet higher than we were. Just a spot, and then up it went, and was just boiling over there, standing maybe three feet higher than the water we were on. Every hair in my body went up. I just, oh. I mean, it makes you sick to your stomach. You're just kind of like, oh, my goodness. Get us out of here. And he did get us out of there. But I, and we, never, we didn't do that again. <laughs> Not with that boat. <laughs> there, actually, it took a lot of guts to walk into that pathway. The wind blew and drove back the water. Now maybe the tide went out too, I don't know what, but it drove it back and stacked it up in heaps on either side and the thing is moving and churning. It's gotta be a wide enough path for two million people and all of their flocks and herds to go through. So this is a mass that goes through. And it dried the ground as well. Instead of this mucky mud on the bottom, it dried it up. It says it congealed the depths of the sea. It, what it did is it solidified the ground so they could walk on it. And so they head across. Josephus tells us not only did Moses strike the, the water with the staff, but he also says that Moses had to go first. Uh, nobody else would go in. It's like, no way, no, not going in there. Moses said, all right, I'll go first. You know, and, and so he starts down and led them through because nobody else would go unless he went first. All right, I would have not blamed them. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. In the, in the early hours of the morning, the light comes back, and they can see finally what's going on. And so there, the, there is Israel, probably clear across this pathway. This is a long ways. It's clear across this pathway, coming out the other side, and the waters are still stacked up, and Pharaoh says, go after them. And so the chariots and the horsemen went into, after them into the midst of the sea, charging down this path. And it came about in the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. 
and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And here's how he did it. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, stick in the mud, and slip sideways, back and forth. And he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand. Now he's on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. He stretches out his hand and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. In the song, he tells us that the wind changed. Instead of coming from the east, it now came from the west. And those stacks begin to just relax and slip back into place. That would be a frightening thing. You're riding along and you begin to see the water pour, flowing toward you. You're in six inches of water. You're in a foot of water. You're in three feet of water. You're suddenly floating. Or not floating, as the case may be. The water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. As they're standing on the eastern shore, these dead bodies are floating up onto the shore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses for three days. <laughs> That's true. I'll show you a little later in the chapter. For three days. That, that was a powerful, powerful faith builder. It is amazing. That's a subject of its own. Of, of, of Why is it that you can see a miracle like that and then forget it three days later? Have you noticed? I mean, you can have something dramatic happen and that same unbelief comes right on back. Uh, that's another subject. On the western shore of the Red Sea, Israel could still be considered a band of runaway slaves. It's true, Egypt had driven them out to prevent any more plagues, but their army remained powerful enough to recapture their former slaves and bring them back to Egypt in chains. On that side of the sea, Israel's freedom depended on Egypt's goodwill, which of course didn't last long. But on the eastern shore, everything changed. Here, Israel was at last totally free from their old bondage. With the dead bodies of their attackers washing up at their feet, the new nation stood looking out across an ocean they had just walked through and were filled with awe and faith. They were now a free people headed toward a beautiful land that God had promised would be their home. Do you see the difference? On the western shore, they're still running for their lives, trying to get away from a powerful Egyptian military. Egypt is devastated in its economy. They've lost their firstborn sons. I mean, they're in bad shape, but they still have a full military, the most powerful in the world. And all they have to do is just go out and bring Israel back anytime they want. But on the eastern shore, having passed through the waters of the Red Sea, now Israel is a free people. Egypt they will never see again, at least not this army and not in this season. There will be future attacks, actually, many, year, many hundreds of years later, but it won't be the same. Now they're a free people. Now they're a nation. 
Now their focus comes off the past and goes on to the future. Now they're going forward to inherit their promises, not simply running to get away from their oppressors. Do you see the difference? It's, it's a powerful moment. This is the beginning now. They're a nation now. Everything has changed. As we read the account of the Exodus, we discover God wants to teach us important lessons about the Christian life. The experiences of Israel illustrate many truths about how we're to walk with God. Today, we'll focus on the fact that in Christ, we too stand on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. That's the point. That's where you and I stand, on the eastern shore, not the western shore. Like Israel, we too are free from the powers that once held us in bondage. And we are also similar to Israel in that, we, that along with this new freedom have come new responsibilities. We'll talk about life on the eastern shore. Would you open your, turn your, in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. What does Egypt represent? If these are lessons that we're supposed to be drawing from, what does Egypt represent in the Christian life? The world and the bondage that we fall into living in that world. Yes. Do you see that? In a sense, everyone in this room has been in bondage in Egypt. You and I have all, like Israel, come out of slavery. Let me, let me show you that. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul describes the powers that hold us in slavery before we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He says, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, in other words, destined for the wrath of God, even as the rest of those who didn't know God. Egypt was our bondage. We had forces that enslaved us. And Paul lists some of these. When he says, walked according to the course of this world, I call that peer pressure. We lived under the influence of the society and the values we were surrounded by pushed into that. Then he says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who, what's that? Satan. Under the demonic temptations, the demonic oppression, the devil's a player in this thing. They're trying to put us into bondage, trying to cause us to sin and be destroyed. Then he says, and the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience is the Adamic spirit, that thing we inherited from Adam and Eve, that rebellious, selfish impulse that we all are born with. You were born with that thing. Your children will receive it from you. It is like a disease. One time I called it Adamitis. It's a disease-like thing that just is passed from generation to generation. Every human is born with it, a rebellious, selfish impulse, the first word your child learned was no, and the second word was mine. And you can't even remember teaching them those words. You're trying to go, Papa, Papa, and they're going, mine. No. 
All of us come with that. We all pass it to our children. So there's a whole lot of things. People aren't free. There are things that are like chains wrapped around human beings. Please keep that in mind when you deal with people that aren't Christians. Don't get moralistic and scold them. Of course they can't walk righteously. They're in slavery. Have mercy on them and pray for them. Don't judge them. Now, what does the Red Sea represent? If Egypt represents the bondage that we once came out of, those of us who know Christ, what does the Red Sea represent? It represents the freedom that we get now in, as, as represented in water baptism. Now, if you picture it, when Israel went through the Red Sea, in effect, they were baptized, weren't they? Now you say, that's pretty far-fetched. Go ahead and say that, because I'm going to show you a text later on in which St. Paul says that was their baptism. So I didn't make this up. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and in the cloud, he says. Romans chapter 6. The Red Sea was the moment that Israel became free from ever being drawn back into slavery in Egypt. Something deep and permanent was severed. On the eastern shore, they were free now, and the devil would never have a power to take them back. Baptism is a symbolic expression of the decisions every person must make to become a Christian. Look at this. Paul describes these, what baptism represents here. Romans 6, verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, that, Adam, that Adamic nature, that rebellious, selfish impulse that's in all humans, might be done away with, so that we would no longer be, what? Slaves to sin. Just as Egypt had to let go of Israel as their armies were destroyed in the waters of the Red Sea. The flesh, the devil, the world loses its power over a, over a child of God as they have the deep attitudes which they express in water baptism. When you're baptized, what happens? You're, we lay you down into the water. What does the water represent? A watery grave, death. We literally are burying you in a watery grave. What's, what's going down there? When, you, when you, you're making a pledge of your heart, you're expressing something by saying, bury me. What's, what's dying? The self, that old nature. You said, I don't want to live in that thing anymore. It's a deep form of repentance, isn't it? My old ways, my old life, I'm, I'm burying it. I don't want to live in that old way anymore. Now, fortunately, we don't leave you down there. <laughs> then you really would die with Christ. 
But we raise you back up. And what does that symbolize? New life. Resurrection. You are laid down into the grave with Christ, buried with him. And then you are raised up, made alive together with him. These are the deepest things. Repentance and faith in Christ. Identification with Christ. In repentance, we choose to die with him. We bury our old life. Sin has no power over a corpse. Let me say it again. This is, uh, I'm going to say something important now. Sin has no power over a corpse. In death, the spiritual tie to Adam is broken. This death we vicariously take part in, joining Christ in his death, is accepted in the spiritual world as an actual death. When you die with Christ by faith, in the spiritual world, it is accepted as a actual death. In God's thinking, there's no more judgment for you, for you have died for your sins in Christ. In the devil's realm, there's nothing more you can do. He's a dead body. Adam's power, this disease that has passed through us and somehow dwells within us, pulses literally in our flesh somehow. It's a mystery. I don't fully understand how it works, but I know what it is. I, I've had it. Got it. That thing has now lost its power, and I am no longer a child of Adam. In that sense, that spirit isn't mine anymore. It's snapped. I'm a corpse. I'm free from it forever. These Egyptians which you see today, you will see them never again. You'll see them never again. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You really are free. The thing's snapped. It's cut. In the spiritual world, your death, you say, is that really true? Yes. It's as though you really died to God, to the devil, and to the powers in our flesh. The thing is snapped by that action. That's why baptism is such a lovely expression of that. You have to be water baptized to have that happen. No, I guess not, but why wouldn't you be? And, and in ex what you're expressing is by faith saying, I die with Christ. And these things are broken. I go through the Red Sea and Egypt is drowned. No longer does the devil or my old life have any power to put me in slavery again. On the eastern shore of the Red Sea, you raise me up again, living new life in Christ. I am free indeed. Whom the Son has set free is free. Really free. Honestly free. This is not just poetry. This is not just some nice thought. But spiritually, the thing is, is cut like with an axe. It's gone. And I'm a free man or woman. Faith, we express also that we now live with Christ. If this is you, and you notice you've been on a diet, <laughs> and this is Christ, when you are joined to Christ, you put yourself in him by faith, it's literally like this. You are in Christ Jesus. You are enveloped by him, surrounded by him. What is his is yours. 
His death is your death. His resurrection and new life is your resurrection and new life. Everything God gives him, you receive because you are one with him now. You are his body, he's your head. You are his bride, he's your husband. You are one flesh with him, as real as a one fleshness as any marriage or as if you were the body of his head. That's why God answers your prayers. That's why you have eternal life. That's why you will be resurrected without question. That's why you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why you're baptized with the Holy Spirit power for ministry. That's why you have authority over the demonic. You're in Christ. When the devil sees you, he sees Christ. When God the Father sees you, he sees Christ about you. Your authority, your power, your privilege. When you step before the throne of God and you ask for something, it's as though Jesus himself were coming and making that request. You pray in Jesus' name. That's what it means. Isn't that powerful? Boy, the Red Sea, the waters of baptism. What a moment we stand with Israel, as it were, at the eastern shore with the dead bodies of the Egyptians floating up at our feet. Now what does the eastern shore represent? It's the new life we live. Let me read this and uh, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are free now standing on this eastern shore having the powers of Egypt destroyed. Free from the powers that once held us, but we're not to the promised land yet. In all of this typology, what do you think the promised land represents? Heaven, right? We're between the Red Sea and the promised land. Between our deliverance from the old powers and between the heaven that we will someday step into. Nor has God freed us from old bondages just to make us slaves to him. Now listen to me. God doesn't take you out of slavery to the devil and make you a slave to him. Now you may say, wait a minute, I've read stuff about us being his slaves. Yes. But he doesn't make you one. In his heart, you are his children. We choose as an act of love to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and make ourselves willing, joyful slaves of his, serving him, putting his values, his good, promotion of his kingdom ahead of our own. We serve him as though we were slaves in the household of a master. But we're not slaves, not even sort of slaves. Everything we do is a free act of worship and a gift from the heart. He never forces it. You'll hear people talk about how, you know, God's up there and you've got to do this and that. And, and yes, in a sense, you'd be, certainly be wise to do what he asks. But he doesn't make you a slave. We are children of God. I've had him say, oh, I heard a pastor say this the other day. It was really cool. He said, I was in a situation and, I, and he said, God, can I leave this place? I'm not a slave. And God says, no, you're not. If you want to leave and start all over somewhere else, you can do that. And he thought, that's not a good idea. 
You're not stuck in the thing, you know, in situations you're in. You're not a slave there. It's a choice you make. It's a free thing you, you've chosen to do. And yet you're wise to submit yourself totally to the Lord because he loves you. He sees things you'll never see. His will for you is perfect. And so you and I are fools, frankly, when we turn away from the Lord. Take it from one who's turned away from the Lord and knows exactly what he's talking about. I've made a lot of, whenever I've turned away from the will of the Lord, I've regretted it bitterly. Every time. And whenever I've done what he's asked me to do, though I complained and groaned at the time, as the years passed, I became deeply grateful I obeyed him and see now the wisdom of his choice over what I wanted. How many can say amen to that? Yeah, that is the Christian life. He asks us to choose to follow him. He will provide us with all the resources we need to be overcomers. But we are still responsible to choose to obey him and draw strength from these resources. In this new freedom we have, we still have a choice. Believe it or not, you can choose wrongly. You're not a robot. You didn't get a lobotomy in the process. You are sons and daughters, freed entirely from these old powers, but so free that you can, if you choose, go back into bondage. Now that's crazy, but it can be done. We live with two realities. We are completely secure in his power to keep us spiritually safe, protecting us from anything that would try to overpower us. Yet we also remain vigilant in keeping the attitudes of our heart right before him. Here's how I characterize the Christian life. As though God had great big hands around me. He has broken the power of Egypt. He has set me free. There is not a power in heaven or hell. Neither things to present nor things to come. Nor things above or below. There's nothing that can take me away from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I am totally surrounded and safe. On the other hand, he speaks to me, standing there in the middle of his hands, and he says, be vigilant over your heart. Don't let attitudes come in that take you away from me. You see, nothing can take me from him, but I can climb out. And so I still have a responsibility. On the eastern shore, they're free. Egypt will never have the power to take them back. But they must still choose to walk righteously with God. That's their choice. At, you're in Corinthians 10, maybe? Beginning at verse 1. Now look how Paul uses these very, this very account that we've been talking about. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, that would be Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were what? There you go. I didn't make this up. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Moses, their leader, they followed into, the, into that water. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low, i.e. died in the wilderness. Whoa! What's, what's, what's the spiritual food and spiritual drink? Paul says that Israel was baptized in effect. They had their own baptism as they went through the Red Sea and they had their own communion, the Lord's table. 
They had the bread in the cup. They had the, the manna from, the, from heaven. And they had water that the, was miraculously coming out of the rock, which was Christ. He says they had communion. They had water baptism. They had, they had all these graces. And yet, they died in the wilderness without making it to the promised land. One whole generation did. And then why? He tells us. He says, now these things happened as examples for people long ago, not us. Is that what yours says? Who is it an example for? Oh, Christians? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Remember what they craved? It said the leeks and onions of Egypt. Boy, they must have had breath that would kill. <laughs> Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to play and uh, sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Remember, they made that horrible golden calf and then had, a, had an orgy. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, where they began to go out to, to the tribes around them and have uh, sex with them. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord... Be angry at God, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, complain against their leaders, Aaron and Moses, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Do you see that? Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are supposed to learn from their example. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, who's kind of uh, deciding that he's going to heaven regardless of his behavior, think, take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says, you and I, in these great hands, in this wonderful protection of God's, have a responsibility to continue to guard our heart. That's all we have to do, is just guard our heart. It's not hard. It's not something beyond our reach. It's not difficult. It doesn't mean, well, if you sin, does that mean? This, these things aren't sin. The sin isn't the issue. It's the attitudes that developed. It was the idolatry and the rebellion and all of the things against who? God. Not the, the Egyptians aren't even in the picture. They're gone. This is between them and God out in the middle of a desert. And he says, we must continually turn away for, from when he says they're craving evil things, what, what, longing for pre-Christian lifestyle. You ever have those thoughts go through your head? Boy, I had fun when I, before I was a Christian. You forget all of the ugly stuff. Actually, I think back, I wouldn't go back for a million dollars. But uh, some of you may have had fun while you're, before you were Christians. I, I didn't. Longing for a pre-Christian lifestyle. Verse 7. Idolatry. That means when you, what, whatever you look to for completeness. To complete your life. To give you fulfillment, joy, happiness, meaning, and purpose. Whatever it is you really turn to. And you can tell by where you spend your time, your money, what you talk about. Where's your passion? That's your idol. And if it's sex or bitterness or money or getting revenge from somebody or whatever it is, if that becomes the focus of our lives, we're in idolatry. Or if it is, verse 8, 
sexual immorality. Or, by the, you know, I know some people that are, actually, they aren't sure, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, depending on whether they want to obey the Lord sexually or not. Some people would actually say, you know, I think I'd rather have my sex and go to hell. That's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. But some people actually feel that way. Anger at God is verse 9. Now, none of us ever get angry at him, but back then they did, and that was a danger. Anger at human leaders. Oh, oh please let that sink in. That's what it means, grumbling there, as they did. They grumbled at, at Moses and Aaron. Now, human leaders aren't perfect, and they make mistakes, and they shouldn't always be followed. But sometimes we just have at them because we're frustrated with, with what God's doing, and, and uh, we grumble at them. What must we do? We turn away from those things, Paul says, and let me tell you what you turn to. You want to stay in the hands? You want to stay on the, in, in all the blessings of the eastern shore? It's quite simple. We're told we ought to confess our sins. Freely and regularly. See, sin isn't the problem. It's the attitudes. And so we confess our sins. And the Bible says if we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible even tells us to confess our sins to one another. That we might be healed. And so confession becomes a regular thing. When we say grace comes down on us like rain, one of the lovely things about grace is it, it invites us to confess freely. I don't have to be afraid of God. I don't have to hide my sin. I don't have to play games with him. I can be totally honest with him for I stand in grace. He's not going to punish me. He's going to cleanse me. And so I've, I freely pour out my sin before him. I, I was at the altar yesterday. I'm just cleansing my heart. Anything I can think of, just getting it out. I don't have to be afraid of him. I just need to vomit, man. Get this trash out. Get any things off my conscience. Be completely clean before God because I know I'm about to take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I'm about to receive that grace to wash me. Grace invites me to confess freely and boldly. Secondly, worship strengthens. We strengthen our spirit when we worship. And corporate worship is an important part of that, but so is private worship. As you worship today, did it change something in you? I think all of us dry up. You know, you say, I can be a Christian without going to church. I have never seen anybody who did that who was a growing, reproductive, strong Christian. I've just seen people stay saved. When you drop into that lonely sort of, I'm going to hang on, I'm not going to do anything, your focus becomes on, on not doing bad stuff, doesn't it? But when you gather with the people of God and you hear the word preached and you, hear, and you worship and you're built up and you're strong, your focus isn't on not doing bad things. Your focus begins on what's my calling and ministry and where am I supposed to serve you. Your life opens up and you start moving toward the promised land rather than standing there going, I'm not going back to Egypt. It's a whole different thing. We need to be worshiping. We need to be reading the word. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You do not think like God thinks by na naturally, do you? His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. But his ways and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts and mine. And I just need to read this Bible and hear it preached to me to constantly bring me back to healthy thinking. People don't sin generally trying to be nasty and awful. 
But people do awful things when they're trying to do what's right in their own mind. People justify themselves. They think what they're doing is right. And you and I, apart from God, do horrible things believing it to be right. Necessary. I have to do this. I have to protect myself or I have to whatever. We need our thinking constantly changed by the word of God. And lastly, prayer. Now there's all kinds of prayer, but I'm thinking particularly of releasing our worries to God and receiving guidance. Worries get us in trouble. Those worries build up and dry us out and make us do things. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. I believe we ought to do that daily. Just take our worries, take our cares, and just give them to God and let him give us guidance. So the Christian life isn't hard. In fact, it's very simple. I have absolute certainty that I'll go to heaven. How about you? I know that the armies of Egypt have been cut off. I know there's not a power in heaven and earth that can take me away from God. Nothing, no force, no demon, no persecution, nothing can take me away from him. I have no intention of going. Do I think I'm so strong and have such great willpower? Not at all. I'm relying on the miracle power of God to preserve me. But I know also this, I am not going to be presumptuous and neglect my spiritual life. I am not going to go without prayer, go without worship, go without, go without uh, the word of God, go without confessing my sins. I am not going to be foolish entertaining some kinds of evil things, thinking, well, once saved, always saved. That's not true. With many of them, God was not well pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. They did not make it to the promised land. Do you understand? Now that's a long way down the line. You have to be a real knothead to get there. They were, I might add. So I'm not a, that's, but I'm not toying with that. There's things I don't even sort of let creep in because I just don't want anything messing around with my heart. I want to keep my heart right before God not earning my salvation, I'm staying in his hands. It's not like I don't sin, I sin every, every day. But sin's not the issue. It's my attitude that's the issue. It's becoming rebellious or angry or bitter. That's the issue. So today we stand with three things. Egypt's power is broken. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. The Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see them again forever. Hallelujah. We pass through in the waters of baptism and, and what the attitudes that would baptism represent. We are dying with Christ. And in the spiritual world, that death is a real one. These powers really let go. They're really gone. Because I have died with Christ. Not just poetry. Not wishful thinking. Something spiritual has changed. Because I die with Christ. And then I rise with him. Full of new life. Standing clothed with Christ. Surrounded with him. So that I come before God. As if Jesus himself came before God. I'm in Christ. And he in me. 
And then I know, standing on the eastern shore, that I have a responsibility to simply guard my heart and to not become bitter or sour or critical or rebellious or love, the, love immorality to the point that I become under judgment. I'm going to just stay safely in the hands of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's start by thanking the Lord. Would you thank him that whom the sun sets free is free indeed? Would you just say, Lord, I'm, a, I'm free. I'm free from the old bondage. I'm free from peer pressure in the world. I'm free from addictions. There's not anything that has a right to me anymore. The powers of Pharaoh and his army are dead in the waters of the Red Sea. And I stand on the eastern shore free totally free. Let that freedom just sink into your heart because it's a reality. And secondly, would you just realize that as you died with Christ in your, in your water baptism, as you by faith went into the grave and put the old person down there, joining Christ in his death, that in the spiritual world that really is your death? You've now died for your sins as it were in Christ? And the devil looks and you're a corpse. The father, when it comes to judgment, looks and you're a corpse. Adam's power, that old addiction that used to hold you, can't affect a corpse. Spiritually, it's a real death that you die. And then remember that you're raised up alive, made alive with Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, surrounded by the precious righteousness of Jesus as if you were enveloped in him, like his bride, like his very body. You're joined to Christ forever. Hallelujah. And then would you also just make that attitude of heart that says, I don't intend to be like some in Israel as they came on the eastern shore and grumbled and craved the things of the old life and we're in immorality and idolatry and grumbling and anger at God. I'm not letting that junk come in my heart. But I'm just going to walk wisely in his great safety. I'm going to confess my sins and read the word. I'm going to worship, make that part of my life. I'm going to pray and bring my needs to the Lord on a regular basis. And in that, I haven't a question in my mind that I indeed will inherit the promised land. And just begin, if that's, your, if that's your commitment, just say, thank you, Lord. I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you, Lord. There's nothing that can take me from your hands. Thank you, Lord, for the boldness and the security that I have in you. Praise you, Lord. And one more question before I, before I close. Is there anybody, you know, and you've been listening to all of this about the Christian life, but you realize that you're still on the western shore? You have never really repented and joined yourself to Jesus Christ. You may know a lot about religion. You may have come out with a whole nation of Israel and you're camped there on the western shore. But you've never gone through the Red Sea. By that I mean dying with Christ. Putting, confessing that you're a sinner and, and that that old life needs to die in the waters of the Red Sea and that you need to rise and live the life now with Jesus Christ as your righteousness. You've never made that choice. Anybody here who says, today, Pastor, I heard you, and I'm making the decision right now, 
I'm, I'm dying with Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him. He will be my hope entirely for heaven. I'll not trust anything else but Jesus alone. And you need to make that confession. Would you lift your hand before the Lord right now? And just, if that's you, yes, God bless you. Who else? God bless you. Anybody else? You just need to make that confession. It's such an important one. Nobody can make it for you. Yes, God bless you. Praise you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your work. One more moment. Anybody else need to raise your hand and just say, Pastor, I'm going through the Red Sea. I'm dying with Jesus Christ. Yes, God bless you. And you, sir, God bless you. Yes. Hallelujah. All right, church, let's pray. There's a number of people who've just said, I'm, I'm making that choice right now. Just everybody, if you would, and those particularly who raised your hand, pray after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus. My old life is wrong. I've sinned. I've done stuff that I should, I should go to hell for. I admit it. I know that. But I believe that when Jesus died on the cross... He paid for my sin. And today, I reach out in faith and I lay hold of Jesus and I die with him on that cross. I'm buried with him in the waters of baptism. His death is my death. So because of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. I will believe in him, hold on to him, and trust him, Jesus alone, all my life. This isn't just a decision for today. I'm committing myself for the rest of my life to trust Jesus Christ. And I also believe that as he rose from the dead, I rise with him. That because of Jesus, I will live forever. I too will be resurrected. I'm clothed with his goodness right now. I believe that. Now, those of you that are praying with me, anybody's welcome to do this. Would you put your hand on your heart? Because you're clothed with the goodness of Jesus Christ, God the Father gives you the Holy Spirit to live within you. You literally, physically become a temple of God. The Spirit of the Lord comes inside you and joins himself to you forever. And so I just want to signal that by having you lay hands, as it were, on yourself. And I'll, I'll just pray freely. Holy Spirit, come now into these beloved. Fill this heart. Baptize. Overflow with your presence. You're our strength. Because of you, we can walk the Christian life. Because of you, we have all we need in the resources. You are rivers of living water to us. Fill this beloved now. Give strength and guidance and wisdom and protection. May the love of God just be shed abroad in their heart by you now. Never leave them. In Jesus' powerful name we pray it. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks right now for those who've received Christ. We praise you and bless you. And for the rest of us who've had you in our hearts, we thank you again for our salvation. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, 
please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.